Lieutenant Worf, personal log. It would have been nice to have a friend, even if it was an android. Welcome to Reengage, where we watch every episode of the sci-fi series Star Trek The Next Generation and re-engage with the show from the perspective of adult storytellers instead of the late Gen X to early millennial children we were when it first aired. Today we're talking about the 16th episode of season three, The Offspring, and I am so excited to welcome you, my fellow Cultural Bridge officers, to discuss an episode that really punches you in the gut. I have feelings. We've even got a very special guest who will be our Brent Spiner memnoir correspondent, but we'll introduce him in a moment. Yay. In the meantime, I want to say hi to you, Eric Curry. That's my name, everybody. I got married. Yay! <laughs> Yay! I am Eric Curry. Coming to you very happily from Gig Harbor, Washington. How are y'all doing today? Doing good. Kate Yeager, how are you? I'm doing so swell, thank you. I just tested negative for COVID yes. like moments ago, so I'm feeling really good. Those endorphins for every positive or I guess negative test is, yeah. uh, is really good. <laughs> Jimmy G, how are you doing? I am doing amazing. I'm excited to talk about uh, this episode. I had three uh, LOL moments. It's laugh out loud for uh, <laughs> the kids say. And um, one of those was Picard's nipple. And I'm excited to get to that <laughs> one. I know what one of the others is. I'm excited to find out what the third. Hell yeah. That's awesome. I had a different LOL for that. A lust out loud, but we'll talk Ooh. about that. <laughs> I thought about you when it came. I was like, <laughs> uh, And we are happy to welcome Shams Giorgiani to the podcast. Hi, Shams. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan and I love nerding out on, about Star Trek. So this is amazing for me. Thank you so much. I think you are uh, our first international correspondent mm. uh, to join our Cultural Bridge crew. Uh, how is Sweden doing? Sweden is very bright. Oh, we're uh, nearing the summer, so the sun never sets. Uh, and there's you can stay up all night and look uh, watch Star Trek, essentially. So <laughs> it doesn't get better. Which you've been doing a lot lately, right? Yes, a lot of it, all the time. You mentioned when, before we started recording that you are a big Star Trek fan, and it's not so many of you in that country. Uh, what's what's your connection to this franchise? How did yeah. you get involved in? So my, my first kind of memory of Star Trek goes back to nineteen. I'm born eighty three, um, and my first exposure to Star Trek was in eighty seven. Uh, my dad's a huge Star Trek nerd, and he brought home a black and white Xerox copy of. Uh, an image of the Enterprise, the original Enterprise. And I had no idea what I was looking at. And that's my first memory of Star Trek when I was four. And oh, it's that's cool. And then it's basically downhill from there. And again, Sweden <laughs> doesn't have a lot of uh, Star Trek nerds. Uh, I managed to find a kind of club called the, the, the Stockholm Trekkers, uh, which consisted of me and a bunch of uh, dudes. They had bootleg Star Trek VHS tapes, and we kind of rented a, a cinema. And then we watched like full seasons back to back over like long weekends. So this was so that's that's my experience with Star Trek. But I, I, I watched like at least 30 minutes of Star Trek every day, more or less. Like it's it's my therapy. It's what got me through the pandemic and uh, and the, the last dark political years. So it's uh, a, a better future for tomorrow. And I'm surprised we're not seeing more utopian kind of shows to to show us how things could be better and that's 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 star trek to me uh, and i think this episode really captures that in a beautiful way and i i agree i mean especially democratic 
socialist versions of utopias <laughs> like that is exactly what we should be talking about what we should be putting forth there gives hope gives you know a blueprint in a lot of ways uh and we keep leaning towards you know fascist kind of narratives in our entertainment and we wonder why it's so easy to get people to move forward towards that kind of future i i kind of agree in a lot of ways there, Shane. Yeah, and we're moving towards the Irish unification of 2024. I'm very excited about that. So maybe <laughs> Star Trek is inspiring some political change uh, around the world. 32 counties, one island. I'm referencing a fact that uh, uh, the unification party, I guess, I don't know what you would call it, Eric. What is the that party? Sinn Féin. You know, got some votes and it might be in charge of Northern Ireland's assembly there. So we'll see how that goes. We'll be reporting on it in real time here for you Star Trek fans. But we are, of course, talking about The Offspring. It is the 16th episode of the third season. It is Stardate 43657. But in our world, that was March 12th, 1990. A little bit of a break since the last episode of Yesterday's Enterprise. But in the world, some, some updates from previous things that we've talked about. So on February 27th of 1990, Exxon... Corp and Exxon Shipping were finally indicted on five criminal counts for the Valdez spill in Alaska. Um, that was the kind of conclusion, well, not you know, at least legal conclusion uh, to all of that. And uh, they were found culpable, as they should have been, for dumping uh, so much oil into the waters off of Alaska. On March 12th, the day this aired, the LA Raiders announced they're returning to Oakland. Which I just find <laughs> that so franchise amazing. has bounced around so many cities. Huge day for me. Huge day for me. <laughs> for all of Sweden. Honestly, all of Sweden. As a Kansas City fan, their inability to find a home was always really kind of delightful to me. Yeah. And now they're in Las Vegas, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're gonna stick there. That's that's just kind of perfect. It does make so, a, a uh, bit well, of sense. well done, uh jerks. And, and this is the local golf team, right? What am I? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, this might be a little bit of more interest to uh, you, Shams. On March 1st, uh, Steve Jackson Games, which was a uh, tabletop uh, gaming company that created GURPS and a, and a bunch of other um, things that were not Dungeons and Dragons, basically, uh, was raided by the United States Secret Service. And this action was a big part of um, an operation called Operation Sun Devil, which was the U.S. government's kind of crackdown on on hacking and computer hacking and and the manipulation of that. I think they really had just seen the movie War Games and were like, <laughs> "Oh shit, we we can't let people do this anymore." Uh, and you know, of course, led to that kind of idea of hacking in the in the '90s and things like that. But this was significant because it was a gaming company that was making a cyber the the GURPS cyberpunk source book and the. Uh, Secret Service agents found out about it through like a, a bulletin board service and were like, wait, they were reading all this material and being like, well, hold on. They're going to, you know, infiltrate the corp mega corporations and take them down and thought that that was probable cause for raiding a game company and stealing all of their computers because they're like the computers, the files, they're inside the computers. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to take it all away. They eventually, they eventually gave it back like three months later. But this action was important for really digital uh, law and copyright law. And it, it led to the founding of the uh, EFF, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, to like basically try to create 
some bill of rights for people who are, uh, you know, uh, using the computers in this type of service. Yeah, this would be an amazing plot for a fun movie. Like, why hasn't anyone made it? Like, the Secret Service on BBS bulletin boards trying to figure stuff out. That it just <laughs> chef's kiss. Yeah, it seems like something that uh, a nice improv company could make a sitcom out of pretty easily. <laughs> I'm on it. Make it really work. Thank you. Kate. <laughs> Uh, and then a personal thing for me on uh, March 12th, the Connecticut Huskies, uh, where I went to school and where I grew up in, in Connecticut, um, their Ben's basketball team won the Big East tournament, defeating Syracuse. It was the 11th uh, uh, Big East tournament championship. And this really heralded the entire success of the Connecticut Huskies kind of dynasty, I guess you could call it, right? It led to their uh, being a perennial power in the Big East, as well as winning the NCAA championships in 1999. And then I think four or five since then, uh, it was a really big time for people who lived in Connecticut who didn't have any professional sports to pay attention to uh, that was like homegrown. And it was uh, this moment where it really kind of kickstarted. Greg, I meant to ask you, do you remember a, a, the band leader uh, when you were there for the Connecticut Pet Bands when they were winning all those um, rings and he was bald and he would uh, paint his head blue? Remember that guy? Uh, actually, now that I was going to say like, no, I don't know any band leaders, but I do remember a bald headed dude running the band. Yeah. Yeah. That's my buddy, Norm. And both of you missed the wedding for COVID reasons. But <laughs> had a great time there together. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That would have been so much fun. I was... Yeah. It was also the year that the Gampel Pavilion opened on in stores, Connecticut. So it was the state of the art, uh, brand new, uh, eight thousand seat um, arena that uh, opened, I think, on January twenty seventh of this year. And so I, I have fond memories of going to that and just screaming my head off for two hours straight. Uh, my perennial cheers were punch him in the throat or kick him in the face. Perfect. And, uh, you know, like you do when you're an eighteen year old kid, and not I, I had a lot of coffee. I was drinking a lot of coffee at the time. <laughs> My number one, I guess we'll call it for Shams, golf chant, uh, but but really for f football is just hit him with your body. <laughs> That's what the sports, uh, you know, breaks down to. It's, That's all you need to do. Great stuff in our world, but what was happening in entertainment? Because I think there's some really fun songs that are coming out right about that now. That is so, so true. Here on March 12th, 1990, our number one song is Escapade by Janet Jackson. Come on, baby, let's get away. Let's save our Troubles for another day. Come with me, we've got a maid. Let me take you on an escapade, on an escapade, baby. So fucking good. Yeah. I love Janet Jackson. Number one movie, The Hunt for Red October. So classic. Some things don't react well to bullets. <laughs> Irish Russians are the best. Oh, absolutely. Scottish Russians. Scottish Russians. <laughs> Scottish Russians are even better. I do kind of love how they did the the trans the the, the move from yeah. the English though. That was really yeah. well fun. Yeah. Yep. I have not seen that movie for years, but I feel like it holds up maybe like at, at least as a like a microcosm of its time. It does. I you saw know. it last week. It 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 totally holds up. Totally yes. nice. <laughs> One ping only, please. We had the birth, the birth of uh, the musician Hosier, and in the art world, thirteen pieces of art, collectively uh, worth over one hundred million dollars, were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Mass. 
by two thieves posing as police officers. It's the largest art theft in U.S. history, <laughs> and the paintings have yet to be recovered. There are so many good documentaries and movies about that. Yes. Just awesome. One of those paintings is, is in Data's quarters, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I would love that. <laughs> Uh, I also saw that there was a, in Vogue, Hold On uh, was released. What? Uh, Did in, I miss it, this somehow? Yeah, it was in the late of, uh, latter part of February. And I was like, oh man, I remembered that. I didn't go back far wow. enough. I keep waiting for in Vogue to, <laughs> to come back in Vogue, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> they do not get enough credit, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of like, how groundbreaking they were and how tight their harmonies were. And Same I, with SWV. Yes. Talk about them. Sisters with voices. The voices. They were great. Uh, Jimmy, what was going on behind the scenes of this episode? Two little bits. This was the first use of a steady cam, and that happened during the bit uh, where LOL is still in Android form and going through the different looks they may become. That was the very first time in TNG we saw an Andorian, and unfortunately, they were still stuck in the cartoonish original Star Trek look of the Andorians. And uh, we know that this is Frake's first crack at directing and when he had uh, mentioned it to Berman that he wanted to be a director uh, Berman's like well you're, you're gonna have to like go to school to do that you can't just direct and uh, he took that to heart he didn't go to school but he did spend over 300 hours hanging out in the editing room uh, the coloring room you know where they they color the thing they do in the sound to get himself ready for it uh, and they obviously loved what he did on the first one because he didn't have to wait too long before he got some more and now we you know now he's known as a director especially for sci-fi as much as he is for his role as uh, Will Riker. I have to say that that makes a lot of sense that he did all of that background work. Because as far as first episodes go for, uh, you know, sort of actor directors, this is really solid. No, it's super. Agreed. I think he was excited that it was a data episode too, because he's like, oh, this is, you can't go wrong with something like that. Yeah, you're in good hands. And the guest stars on this are, are, are pretty important, right, Eric? Yeah, I'm really happy y'all didn't look up everything because I'm going to take that time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so as lol, we begin, of course, with Hallie Todd. And Hallie was fantastic right from the start. My first memory of her is she was Penny, the daughter of Joe the Toe on Brothers, a Showtime series that I watched when it was in syndication as a kid, pretty much at the same time, but it was like midnight, so I had a TV in my room. And this was about three brothers, and Joe the Toe was like a Sam Malone-type centrist who owned a bar. And then the younger brother was a gay Democrat, and the older brother was a Cars and Beers-type right-winger. And oh, the delightful misunderstandings. Uh, but several great uh, gay main characters who were treated as fully human, fully uh, independent and deserving of every right that everybody else had and still funny. Like it was uh, the kind of character I had never seen as a kid in Kansas in the, in the 80s, right? So, so many shows from the 80s and 90s were central to my learning about like non-straight white life and people. And this was imperfect messages and messengers, but very necessary to this kid in Kansas who, you know, hoped to grow up around assholes without becoming an irredeemable one himself. <laughs> great show. And she was great on it. Tons of guest stars and smaller films in her career. But she's really carved out a space for herself in kids TV as Joe McGuire, Lizzie's mom. 
as I understand, having never seen it, she is a big part of the show. <laughs> Lal, though, was her one guest star between five years on Brothers and then a year as a lead on Going Places, which I really want to track down because it starred Alan Ruck, Helen Locklear, uh, and then Hallie was the third lead with uh, Holland Taylor bringing up the end. I think that cast deserves a look. So I'm going to yeah. track it down. And then she had a supporting role in Murder, she wrote. At the same time, even before Brothers, she had an uncredited role in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. They're about to do the Lizzie McGuire reboot. And so she is set to have another career resurgence. We go to Nicholas Coster as Admiral Haftel. Asshole. A ton of stuff, but most interesting to me, he was married to Candace Hillegas, the great lead of Carnival of Souls. If you remember that fantastic old cult classic filmed in Lawrence, Kansas, her autobiography is called The Odyssey and the Idiocy, colon, Marriage to an Actor, a Memoir. Wow. Um, so he is savaged throughout it, and I have just added it to my Kindle, and I'll be reading it ASAP and give y'all a update on next episode. Apparently and obviously it doesn't pull punches about Coster. His own career, to my mind, never reached her heights between this, uh, between the Carnival of Souls and the fantastic Curse of the Living Corpse with a very young Roy Scheider just a couple of years later. But he went and he studied with Lee Strasberg. He was recently on American Crime Story and a regular on The Bay. He has uh, guest stars in things like The Young Pope, tons of indie movies I've never heard of, tons of TV shows like Dr. Quinn, Time Cop, Third Rock, but mostly 600 episodes of, of the soap opera Santa Barbara. Uh, oh. the, thing, the thing I like him best in is the opening several scenes of All the President's Men when he's the person sitting in the courtroom uh, who is first approached by Bob Woodward and he kind of laughs off all uh, attempts and then gets up and moves. And the, like those opening scenes make the movie really, really uh, launch, in my opinion. Uh, and he's terrific in it. He was Blair's dad on Facts of Life. Big, long resume. All right. Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan. God damn, I just love seeing her name up there in the guest stars. We've talked about her at length, and we will continue to do so during this episode. She is a joy and such an addition to every episode that they put Guinan in. Finally, we get with Judy Ann Elder, who was Lieutenant Ballard, the highest ranking officer we've seen teaching students in uh, Starfleet. Hmm. Fantastic career day on Reengage. We lead to Judy Ann's career. You'll remember her as Harriet Winslow, the second and final Harriet on Family Matters. Uh, she only had six or seven episodes left to film, so they figured they didn't need to kill off or explain away the character. They just recast it for a few episodes and never mentioned why. She was a regular voice on Captain Planet and the Planeteers, among other wonderful voiceover things Grey's Anatomy NCIS That's So Raven ER Wanda at Large Desperate Housewives Cold Case Becker Mad About You Home Improvement Steve Harvey Show Martin 90210 Murphy Brown The Pilot of Rock another one of those great shows for a white suburban kid in Kansas wanting to be an actor bunch of Broadway stars doing live television sitcom Jesus <laughs> V Webster Matt Houston The White Shadow Benson Amen excuse me Amen Wonder Woman, Lou Grant, Sanford and Son, my goodness, the movies like Forget Paris, The Pest, Dead Man on Campus, only goopy shit, and recently that wonderful indie viral. What a pleasure to go into that career. Those are our guest stars today. Let's talk about the episode. That's amazing. I have to say, Shams, if you're confused uh, after listening to Eric's list of movies that you've never seen, we've only seen about a quarter of them ourselves. 
Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, some registered, but there were a lot of like, surely that's made up. That sounds <laughs> totally, totally. Made up. All right, the curse of the living corpse. Sincerely, check it out. That's not real. Shams, do you think it's a good idea to talk about the Brent Spiner? book connection yeah connection here before we get into it or do you want to kind of pepper it throughout what do you think we, we could just mention it. it it yeah so brent spiner wrote a book and uh, for those that are f people are fans of brent spiner he has a very particular sense of humor he was kind of described by the rest of the cast as the funniest one and he's got a very eclectic uh, sense of humor and it really shines in 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 this book and he made a youtube series a few years ago called fresh hell which was exactly the same. But the plot of this book is essentially that it, it takes place a few months or years after, a few months after this episode has aired. This book is semi-based on true events, who knows? But, <laughs> but Brent really weaves like fiction and fact together. But the whole plot of the book is that he gets a fan letter from somebody who claims they are lol. Mm. Somebody says they are lol, and then it turns out to be kind of a stalker situation. Uh, and I'm not going to give away the full plot, but then Brent needs to get a hold of an FBI agent who has a beautiful twin sister who ends up being his bodyguard. And and Brent ends up sleeping with a lot of beautiful women. It, it, <laughs> it, it's, if, you've seen, if you've seen extras with Patrick Stewart... Yes, and yeah. he he just comes off as this dirty old man who just want to see naked young women. I would say that Brent's thing is pretty close, but it's very funny. It has a lot of, uh, you know, insights into uh, into the the daily lives of uh, uh, shooting the series. But it's it's all centered around lol, and there's a lot of allusions and you know references to this episode. And and Brent is trying to figure out what's happening with lol, trying to come and. Uh, get him. So if you if you like Brent Spiner and and you'd like this episode, it's definitely worth the read. That's very cool. That's amazing. Yeah, I keep thinking of the way that Will Wheaton and the other cast members describe Brent Spiner and almost do like uh, uh, impressions of him, and it's, yeah. it it matches what you're saying about this book. So I'm definitely want to check it out, especially after how wonderful this episode was to get into. The writer for this this is actually a spec script that was sent in by uh, Rene Echeverria, a writer who went on. This was his first script. It kind of you know went through a bunch of changes and, and shifts through the writing staff. Snodgrass uh, actually said that she didn't want this one to be made because she felt it was very close to measure of a man and didn't have uh, quite the expansion of, of that theme that she had wanted. But Ray uh, Ashaberry went on to a very long career in the Star Trek universe. He continued to write for Deep Space Nine. He actually said he preferred writing for Deep Space Nine. He wrote 18 episodes of Next Generation, 23 of Deep Space Nine, and went on to a wonderful career creating shows like Medium, Castle, Terra Nova, Teen Wolf. He also co-produced Carnival Row for most recently for Amazon Prime. So he is uh, it, we're really kind of seeing this beginning. He was a playwright and a, and a, and a theater person. And Carnival Row is a great, great show. Only one season. I don't know if they ever intend to come back, but first season was really good. Nothing to do with carnivals either. I'm out. Or Rose for some reason. I'm back in. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're talking about the 16th episode of season three, The Offspring, and his star date 43657. It opens with a walking shot of Wesley, Jordy, and Deanna. You know, just what's happening? Oh no, did he invite you too? I don't know what's going to go on. Wait. Uh, Wesley, you're trying to break into his lab? <laughs> a little throwaway joke for our uh, uh, hacker friend, Wesley Crusher. 
It's a joke just for me. We all know it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then they go into Data's lab, uh, which I don't think we've seen before, have we? Does he? Do we know that he has his own? This lab? is the first time they'll reuse yeah. it for Best of Both Worlds, but this is the first time we see it. I think it's interesting that he has this entire, you know, cybernetics lab to be able to to check out, and he's created a android based on his own architecture has been working on it for the last few weeks no one really knew he was doing this and then they introduce lol who is a androgynous figure in this in this scene what did you guys think of this introduction i'll go with you jimmy since you haven't said much it's all right It was great. It was uh, exciting. There's a, a funny little moment where, you know, they're talking about he's being a little cagey. Data won't say anything is happening. And they show up early and he shuts the door on them. Yeah. That wasn't a laugh out loud moment, but it was a nice moment. Like, oh, okay, a little bit of humor. That's great. Data's not ready. It was very exciting. Like, where is it all going to go? I, I find it really fun that Data kind of shushed them out. You're like, no, no, we're not ready. And he screws on the foot and then he raises the platform up into some i don't know some secret storage compartment on the deck above <laughs> and then they get to come in and then he does the dramatic which i felt like that's a, the, the dramatic flair there was unexpected from data you know i like to when i notice moments like that kind of do a mix of the performance and the character and i'm like i i think it's wonderful because he does not shy away from the you know the version of emotionless that 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 data gives us but like i start to think what the difference is between emotion and a sense of showmanship Mm -hmm. and like the attempt at a a sense of showmanship is a very conscious thing uh for some people and it's really neat to watch data explore that side of humanity consciously and uh we knew that it was going to be his daughter, right? So it, when they first show the foot and the foot goes up and down, I was like, that's a guy's foot. And it was. It was an uncredited actor who's been in another episode of TNG as a costumed person. The stuff with gender all the way through the first half of this especially, and then again at the end, is super duper interesting, both in the way they intended it to be and in ways they did not. Diana's usually on point, but she was all over the place with her weird-ass comments. It, in this episode like you have right. to choose a gender okay it's the 80s right yeah. and her offhand comments as where i'm getting ahead of ourselves but when when like a friend for wharf like right. it's that that's you're reducing somebody quite a bit to one singular role that i don't i found it really strange <laughs> about troy and laforge and wesley watching their reactions was i thought really interesting i thought they played it very well because at first it is amazement and awe and then there's this moment where they look at each other and there's the oh shit oh fuck what does this mean oh my god what does this mean and like it's a it's it's a slow burn for all of their reactions which i think just was very real because i think the first moment would be like holy fuck that's amazing followed by oh no what have you done data like when you have a baby for the first time and you're like, what, what did we I just done? do? <laughs> With that additional thing of we all know the stories and fears about AI self-replicating and we love data, but is this Terminator? Like, <laughs> like you know, it's, it is wonderful to see people grapple with their own prejudices. Well, and not even prejudices, right, Eric? We've already seen a bad version of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's there where this could be dangerous. I don't like how they don't mention lore throughout this entire thing. I feel like it's a 
it's a right. valid comparison here. And even the fact where they say like, if we're the only Soon type androids that are available. And you're like, well, well there is that other yeah. guy. Uh, we don't know where he is necessarily. <laughs> and uh, we'll find out there's more than that. Yeah. And a much better yeah. argument for the Admiral than the one he posed. For yeah. sure. That would have been like, listen, we've already seen the dangerous version of you. We can't just have that run around amok. Right. Um, right. Still not justifiable, but better than what he was given. I also like that Wesley is the one who's like father. He, she called you father or, you know, the, the you know, law called you father. What? That's a big deal. And then credits roll voiceover from Captain Picard, basically saying like, what the fuck? I did not know this was happening. How could you do this? This entire episode is just peppered with some of the most delightful moments between Brent Spiner and Patrick Stewart. And they play off each other so amazingly. And, the simple comment of data i would have liked to be have been consulted and his human very human almost childlike android responses which just expose the absurdity of the stuff he's saying and i think it the picard's initial reactions to this are just so wonderful considering his arc in this episode where he goes later and really goes to bat for data and lol but he really starts in a in a in a half tail like place right and he, with a double face palm coming up to that soon but just his utter frustration of not having been consulted before lol was created but just that mirrors his view of her, lol being equipment right initially yeah. love it i love data's response to that immediately is you know i don't recall anyone else having to ask permission to procreate which is like yeah. well that's a great fucking point mm. like if data <laughs> is supposed to be a full member of the crew and that's what the where we're proceeding you know like okay mic drop the end of the episode right it's a really good point now i want to see all the memos that riker is putting in asking picard uh, about his liaisons <laughs> <laughs> And as Picard becomes convinced and goes over to the side of defense for Data and for Lal, like, it's just inspiring to see a, a character go to bat for his people yeah. than for the institutions and, and what might come down from them. Like, it's that's what you want, not just in entertainment, but like in life. It's It's... And, and to keep it interesting while also doing that. Like, it's a nice line that they get to to write for, for Patrick Stewart because he can walk it. Because they break that scene right away and go to Picard's ready room, right? And have that extended scene where it just continues, right? Where Data just flat out asks, should I deactivate her? And he just blurts out. He just can't control himself. And he's, he's, she's a life Data. Uh, and it's just wonderful to see Patrick Stewart kind of, uh, then that's when he does the memed, well-memed, double uh, facepalm akimbo. <laughs> is, and rightly so, because just the data, every comment he has, like Picard has, he just hits a dead end every time he collects himself, resets, and then again runs up against this wall of utter logic and 
of course, they're there to discover life. And that's, I think he discovers that during that scene. It's, it's really wonderful. Picard gets beaten with it a couple of times. You know, he has that conversation with Troy right after where he's like, why, why is he t- talking about it? It's, you know, it's his offspring. Like, that's not what it is. That's an important thing to note, calling Law the, the child because he, he comes back to it later. But I just love that throwaway line that, that Deanna has at the end uh, where he's like, how can you call a heuristic learning system that has the strength of 10 men a child? You've never been a parent, have you? Yeah, that's great. I love the contrast you can make here between the Kirk-Spock relationship and the uh, Data-Picard relationship in that every time Spock is coming at it from a logical standpoint, he's usually wrong. Like they, they will talk about the emotionlessness of his logic and eventually Kirk's passion. You know, there are times where he is admittedly wrong, but he has a point. You know, whereas with Data, who they talk so much about having literally no emotions, he's using the logic part of his brain to try to understand these emotions. And so all of his logic has a humanity to it that because that's what he wants. And that's what was missing from the logic of Spock so often. And it's just so lovely to watch this interaction like Shams is saying. I love the line, too, in Picard's running room where... Again, he's getting that anger. He's getting his guff up when talking to Data about this. And he says, this is just a stupendous undertaking to create a new life. And very calmly, Data responds like, that's that's being a parent, dude. Like, it is a fucking stupendous undertaking. And you don't realize it necessarily. But that's what this whole metaphor is. And it's so, it's so beautiful. They never mention it. But, I mean, Picard has an issue with kids, right? He doesn't like kids. That's the through line here, yeah. And it doesn't really come across because he it, he instantly becomes uncomfortable in interactions with kids but that ne- never really happens with lol and i think it just speaks to the character of uh, picard that he can kind of set these things aside which he has a ha- much harder time doing with other kids right but yeah. mm. He definitely did it here. Law being taken to the holodeck. Troy is there for some reason. I'm not really sure why Troy I is think there. Just to have some antiquated thoughts on gender and sexuality, <laughs> we just needed Troy there to. Shams, I am with you that Troy does not read as Troy this entire episode. Like, even her arguing, like, how can we name that a child doesn't. Like she should be the first one to say this is a life that we have created, and and they are new, and they are scared and we have to treat them you know like i I just and this whole talk walk and talk by the way lots of walk and talks in here they're well done um but there are a lot of them what i love though what i hate is their antiquated thoughts on gender and sexuality what i love is that they go to the holodeck and troy wakes up on the floor because they couldn't make her a chair in the fucking holodeck they're in the holodeck and she falls asleep on the goddamn floor i didn't even think of that right i didn't think of it either i i want to stress that the costume designers of star trek are really really talented but i just want to repeat that that andorian is the worst (laughs) piece of costuming i've seen on star trek across the line 900 episodes or something it's nuts how bad that is it, the headpiece in particular like looks like it's like about five cotton inches too tight like cotton candy it's a cone head yeah, yeah. it was like a who what's, down in whoville what's happening but, but yeah. since we're talking about costumes we do have to acknowledge uh the utterly brilliant consistency of the the hair team that also made the admiral sideburns pointed um, oh my gosh, this has been a thing her. for you, Jimmy. I did not notice that. 
everybody, this is like the silver spacesuit of the 50s where everybody in the future wore a silver jumpsuit. Everyone wears pointed sideburns. 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 It is starburns. <laughs> it's in the brand Bible. It's super important. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just to again point out the antiquated thoughts about gender, because I think the the, the line that sticks out to me is when Law says, "I am neutered, un inadequate as a uh, non-binary individual to start," uh, and I think that is just something that I was like, "Hmm, that is not a." Uh, current way of thinking about how gender is fluid and you know that yeah. lol didn't necessarily have to choose anything and they started so well because in that first scene data introduces them as my child and like they keep it gender non-specific and then i'm like oh well that's just lovely and then they jump with both feet on your chest and are like, you got to stick with it forever. And it's your primary sexual function. Like, ah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the joy about being an android, right? You can be whatever you feel like. All the parts are included. And they're fully functional. Right. <laughs> I'll try it all out. Exactly. So, yeah. And then I think Troy's lines where they're going through the four finalists are also pretty awful to hear yeah. what i love is in the very next scene after she picks her human female data takes her and teaches her immediately about a chair and my first thought was you could have taught her about that on a holodeck by making one for troy <laughs> <laughs> data was just so fixated on the 1000 uh composites that he created that he did not think about the 1000 variations of seating arrangements he could have also put there they blew all their so money amazing. on the uh steady cam so they can't bring in a chair. <laughs> no chair budget? No, absolutely not. No, I think all these subsequent scenes here with uh, Data going through the motions of teaching Lol stuff for the first time. Uh, and I was just talking to Greg about before we started recording that this episode hits completely different for me after having a daughter myself. Mm. Uh, just being able to enjoy and see these things through her eyes is just wonderful and they, I, i'm impressed that renee managed to kind of capture that he was i think was very, very young at the time he didn't have kids yeah so it really came across in a in a, in a good way and it it's it works so well to endear data further to us and their relationship and that it completely builds the payoff later in the episode this is like we without these scenes we would not get the big payoff in the end uh, it's really precious. Yeah. And I love that the vignettes that they use to to show all of that are mm. all 1,400-year-old physical comedy jokes. Yeah. They've been done for thousands of years. The ball hits you and then you raise your arm. The the drinking problem down the... Mm. the they did not in any way feel embarrassed about that. And they shouldn't because they're that old and that continuous because they are universal. And I was not expecting the drinking problem one. And that's one of my laugh out loud moments on this. <laughs> so it was just like a trip down wonderful, nostalgic comedy lane. It was fantastic. My favorite was when she just yelled, smell! <laughs> <laughs> that scene in, in the quarters is... It felt very much like a pre-toddler's get it first words, right? And it was very just wonderfully yeah, soft. Oh, yeah, you did process your touch sensors correctly. Like that is then that back and forth between parent and child is just was very well done and well acted for two adults. I don't want to get into the whole thing of does Data have emotions or not. But there's the scene where she fails to catch the ball mm -hmm. and he looks at her and he does this face. I'm sorry, honey 
face, which I don't understand why he's mm. giving her that facial expression in terms of does well why would you she doesn't need it you don't need it is it for wesley's benefit is it for benefit but it's you know data has emotions i always go to it's a micro uh, program that he's written for himself to mimic the timing and movements of some kind of obvious things and he's made it universal rather than yeah. specific to whether the incidents or interaction can be perceived by the other no you're right and it, it is actually consistent data data does this throughout star trek a couple of times where he's clearly tries to read the room and then does a human response to it often off key and it's very humorous and this one is one of those too i laughed at that because it was like yeah this it feels like oh yeah an android shouldn't do this but he does do it here that like encouraging hmm you're getting it kid don't worry about it <laughs> and like there's whether it was intended or not and i'm sure it wasn't i usually like to err on on the side of giving you know credit to the the creatives who've been in charge of it but like there's so much more research that's gone into emotional cues that are physical and people that to whom those are not instinctive and having to learn it and there's there's wonderful things to be noticed in in spiner's process about what that means to an actor kind of going through that who didn't have that process himself it's it's his work is always such fascination to watch i really love that voiceover too over that montage feels like data is describing the process or the experience that i have as a father but doing it in a very data way and i think even sometimes that that expression that we're talking about after the ball moment could be him remembering having a similar experience i also like the fact that whenever we see data read we see his eyes moving very fast and he's like flipping ahead. And then when we see Lal do it in this montage, she's very speed of a, of a normal human reading. And he's trying to be like, oh, well, I can do this better than you can, but she can't. And trying to figure out how to encourage without being like, you're not as good as I am. It's it's a it's such a nice line to feel. And as you're saying, Shams, like these scenes here really set up everything that's going to happen to come. Including this next little section after Wesley, of course, gets in trouble for not getting a haircut. I don't know where, <laughs> where, why that section is there. Parents, huh? Right, did parents. You, did, you did you clock the sideburns? <laughs> oh, maybe they weren't pointy enough. <laughs> like, you got to get in there and sharpen them up, buddy. Yeah. This is uh, why you don't share your Google calendar with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> By the 23rd century, you should know that. Well, I love the next, after after the sort of montage, they get down to like, now Lull is, is more in her teenage years, right? Like mm. sort of progressively or, or maybe, you know, and wants to know what is my purpose. And I wrote down, dear God, I've been to so much therapy to answer that very question. And what Data says is really beautiful because it really just sort of comes down to like, yeah, we just got to kind of make the world a better place than we found it. And I was like, yeah, that's a lot cheaper than $150 a pop I've been paying. <laughs> so you just watch Star Trek for your therapy. That's Shams has been doing. Yeah. Uh, that, that walk and talk, there's another walk and talk here in that set. Yeah. Uh, is just that like, why we do this? What do we do? What, 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 oh, the yeah. million questions. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love that so much because... We've all been there. The thing that is not great uh, is that, and this is the only time we see him do this, she's about to go on her millions and millions of questions, and he's like, well, I'm going to shut her down right? and put her in her space like a dog. You don't do that. That's just a frustrated parent writing that scene. <laughs> <laughs> go to bed! 
it's no different than telling them to go watch a movie. Go watch a show. Just stop talking to me. So then he's going to go to school. This is Wesley's suggestion was to socialize lol. Uh, and that doesn't go very well. Leading into that, I love Brent Spiner's line reading, you will be going to school tomorrow. Because that that's a decision that he made right then because of all the questions and like, okay, I wasn't sure, but now I know you're absolutely going to school. And then that image of lol apart from the smaller children, Ooh, yeah. not knowing what to do and like looking at the plants, it's it, that is so heartbreaking. I, I found that like the subsequent scene where Data explains laughing at her versus with her. Yes. I think it's just one of the most beautiful scenes that just ca encapsulates Star Trek's and the sci-fi spirit of this. Because at the end of the day, sci-fi is about using technology as a mirror to our own humanity and understanding things. And she asked, like, why are kids mean to me? And he just very succinctly explains that people are afraid of stuff that's different from them, which is the cause of so much trouble here on Earth right, right now, all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just this beautiful little truth bomb that's dropped. And it's it, it could have expanded upon it, but it's just it was one of those sci-fiest moments of Star Trek. It's on my you know top ten list, easy. And I love that. And it's 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 so simple. It's, it's the kids being mean. They don't mean to be. It's human nature, and we have to kind of overcome that. And it's it's just very beautifully. Explained. It really is. And also, it makes me think of children who are on the autism spectrum. Yep. And how they experience life and not being able to understand emotion or being laughed at or laughed with and all those social cues. Uh, to me, that's that was a, a very strong theme throughout this of like, this is, uh, you know, it's it, as you said, it's a universal thing, Shams, but it also can be very much about like, how do you process emotion? Why are we trying to be more mean or more, you know, more socialized in, in, in being like these people who are not to be emulated. I like that he goes to talk to Beverly because yeah. Beverly knows what it is to have an unpopular child. Bless Wesley, like he's <laughs> been different too, right? Like he's the smart one in the room. And like, I'm sure he was always sort of on that outside. And I really love that conversation. Beverly best just basically says like, help her realize she's not alone, which is just, you know, one of the only things you can do. And I love her line here being like, at the end of this, being like, hmm, I think you actually do have feelings, Data. Yeah. Then, of course, we get the actual antagonist of this episode show up here at the end of this part where, it, and it's not Picard's chest hair. Uh, is it his nipple? It's his nipple. <laughs> nipple. We're like, mm -mm, I see you. <laughs> I wrote down nipple alert in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that the Admiral shows up here, Admiral Haftel, but I, in my head, I kept calling him Admiral Asshole. Yes, um, me too. He is basically saying like, oh, I don't know, we're going to have to take that android away. And that's a nice little stinger to be like, this is the conflict of the episode going forward. I have a, I have a pet peeve here with Star Trek. And I, I need to expand upon this because it comes back to this. Star Trek has this theme, or Gene Roddenberry had this theme of hating authority. <laughs> Starfleet, upper, senior, senior management are always portrayed as these complete douchebags. And there's this consistent theme of like Kirk leaving the captainship and turning into this boring douchebag. And life is on, you know, behind the helm of a of a ship. Uh, and I find this a little bit frustrating because frustrate it. Star Trek's utopian vision is that it's always a better version of what we have today. <laughs> but. But it seems like Roddenberry was so burned by senior command that he didn't include them in his utopian vision. I keep coming back to that quote 
when they kind of revealed that Patrick Stewart was going to play Picard. And they're like, why do we have a bald guy in the future? And the answer was like, because in the future, nobody's going to care. So I always become very frustrated when they have senior leaders at Starfleet who just don't get it. And I understand that they need for the episode, they need an antagonist and, you know, th there has to be someone. But it's always so frustrating to see another senior commander not portrayed in any kind of positive light. It's With no subtlety, right? There's no, there's no yeah. variance. He was just absolute. And even his yeah. lines they were given to him was like, I forget what it was specific. It was like, there's no logical way you could disagree. Like there's about a thousand ways I can easily disagree because you don't really have an argument. You have a feeling or you have a desire to take away from something and that's all you're focusing on. Is it always like that with everyone in the Federation uh, leadership or everyone in Starfleet leadership? Because I think that's important. Like a healthy yeah. distrust of military leadership is fine with me. No, I'm talking about the universe. I have a healthy distrust of every person in military. But that's not this universe. All universes. <laughs> the multiverse. Terry leadership, I have a healthy distrust. Here's my out loud ramblings on what Shams just said, because I think that's a really interesting point, is I wonder if the takeaway, whether conscious or not, is that change, real change happens, quote unquote, on the ground, but with the people and you can't trust it from the corporation. I wonder I wonder if there's some sort of that kind of like, we're the ones that have to take control of this because we can't trust the people up above us to take the reins and do it themselves. Because they don't have all the information and they're not there seeing it all first. They don't have all the information and also they protect their power. And to a certain degree, Haftel does change, right? We'll get to that, but like right. he does kind of see the error of his ways at least emotionally, but he needed to have that face to face, that experience of meeting law. This is the weakest part of the writing of this episode, I will say, because Haftel's arguments just don't make any sense. It just it just seems like we needed to have an antagonist. This is this is the yeah. conflict of this. It's very bald faced. I, I think this episode would have been so much more interesting if what if Haftel had super compelling arguments? Yeah. What if he came in and it just made a whole lot of sense? And then suddenly we're torn between like well, do we take data away? Are we, and then we get into the whole issue of like, when does child protective services come in and take a, a child away? And it just, it's a, it's a whole other thing, but it just opens us up in so much more interesting way instead of just painting out another Admiral or Commodore as this complete out of touch asshole. I completely agree, but I, you know, I, and I hate devil's advocate, but I also, at this point in current world events, I'm also all right with some villains being completely unrealistic in what they're saying or so stupid they don't actually understand the context or so mean that they pretend they do but don't. Mm. But I'm okay with all of that. I used to only want that dramatic thing that y'all are talking about and I completely agree. It's more interesting. It's more compelling. It's more of those things. I just think that today there's a lot of interest from me in portraying villains as they appear in the real world as opposed to always having the dramatic success of it so like i like it when these guys come in and are absolutely either moronic or a little bit evil because i i watch some of these senators and i watch mm -hmm. some people who are speaking all over the world and i think that's that's who we do have to kind of be on the lookout for that's valid and i will say it allows our heroes to be heroes unequivocally right so that's that's something to be said and it's 45 minutes you can only do so much you can't always have you can't always have a villain who is completely 
you know, four dimensional for us to understand in, in that amount of time. So I get that too. They go to 10 forward. And I think this is a brilliant idea uh, for data to introduce Lol to Guinan, number one, but then number two, to ask Guinan to uh, take her on and interact with humans who are not her father. I think that's a really important step for her development. I love the line, father says I would do well to work with someone as old as you. <laughs> I love that. That's my, that was my laugh out loud uh, line. Mostly at, at Whoopi Goldberg's eyes. The reaction is everything. I love we learned that lal means beloved in Hindu, which uh, absolutely goes towards our point. Like, that's a very sentimental name. Intellectually, at least. Oh, Jimmy. Well, because he can't. He, well, right. Data can't love, but he can name love he can say love and uh she uses a contraction how exciting yeah isn't it i have autocorrect on my phone are you telling me data can't change his freaking programming so he uses <laughs> of course he can um, on how how hardwired is this code he's a positronic yeah. self-learning heuristic brain but he can't do contractions it's a silly sci-fi <laughs> device but i forgive oh, yeah. it only because i love the character and the actor, but it is utterly stupid that he can't say, use contractions. Yeah, sh Shams, it's the detail that fucks up all of my hopes and dreams. <laughs> this makes no sense to me. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be a Star Trek podcast if we couldn't nitpick at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing for me, he very, uh, Data, when he's making LOL says like, oh, I improved her eyes and skin so she doesn't have to have this pigmentation. Do that for yourself, dude. Like, that's not that hard. Why? Poor Brent Spiner is like, see, you don't have to pretend to be an android and have yellow contacts and <laughs> three hours of makeup every day. Oh, poor Does guy. Just go back to the line earlier that Troy gave Law. Like, you have to pick something and you stick with that for the rest of your life. So <laughs> he has piss colored eyes and jaundiced skin, and that's what he's got to live with for the rest of his life. <laughs> The, the production people are like, we have the, the, the set photos, like the press photos. We can't change that. It's on TV Guide. I feel like that that experience helped create the deadpan humorist that he is. Mm. Had to stay st so still for so long. You either become an asshole or you become really funny or both. Or both. <laughs> yeah, we have to go over the comedy bits in 10 Ford. So we've already mentioned one of them. It wasn't my laugh out loud moment with the dribble. Yeah, anytime you can work in any kind of spit take, you have to. Have to. It doesn't matter that it's been done a million times. You're obligated as a comedian. It's a rule. To work it in if you can. Uh, and it was brilliant. My second laugh out loud moment uh, following the Picard nipple was when the the two crewmates are kissing and Law yells out, "He he's biting her. <laughs> he's, he's biting that female. It's biting that female. Absolutely hysterical. Yeah. And then the, where are they going? Why are they mm. leaving? Yeah. Mm. That's something your father is going to have to explain to you. Yeah. Is, am I am I too early for the Riker moment? I love that, that Jonathan Frakes is like, I'm going to put myself in and I'm going to be an asshole. <laughs> and get one of the great laughs in Star Trek history. And I didn't get a feeling he was hitting on her. It's like she was new. He hadn't seen her. Eh, it's the body language. I would, I would 
want to give him the benefit of the doubt. He he gives her a look when he comes in. He's like he definitely perks up. I don't know. There was a look, and I don't yeah. think he was necessarily hitting on it once he started talking to her. But it's at that point, and she was kind of coy. I loved it. She was kind of looking. She to was the being side. a little. She was trying to. And then, she was flirting for sure. She was flirting. She was trying yeah. to mimic what they was doing, and then yeah. the, the kiss. He almost does like a triple take. Your your daughter. Right. Yeah. I'm out of here. It's it's no. way too much and it's absolutely perfect. Especially considering he's only been gone for like a couple of days. Then he like comes back and there's this grown ass woman who is suddenly Data's daughter. And like what the actual fuck? And it, and it works it works really well with Data's old timey, what are your intentions with my daughter? It just yes. it just the delivery, who's saying to who, it's just, it just, that whole scene works wonderfully. Law then has to really have a bit of an emotional, we get a little sense that she's operating on a different level than Data with her reaction, having been embarrassed with Riker about what does love mean? How can I, well, I'll never be able to experience this. Why am I even trying to, and all of this. And uh, Data does some of the things that she, that he learned from the advice with, with Dr. Crusher of just being like, you know, I know this is hard, but this is what we do, and it's important. And I love this scene where Law says, you are wise, Father, and I've learned to show infection by holding hands. And it's that weird, awkward hand-holding scene, but it's so touching. That scene was actually sat a bit weird with me because mm. Data's been a pretty good father up until this point. And this is where he says, like, she asks about purpose of life and blah, blah, blah. And he says, like, the effort yielding its own reward is a bit of a weird statement. And this is a theme that's occurred in Star Trek before. Uh, if you remember the original series, uh, the episode, This Side of Paradise, mm. Kirk has this complete hang-up on Spock just being happy. And that's not acceptable to him because you have to suffer in life. And if you don't suffer, you're not happy. And this kind of... I, I found this to be very strange from, from, from Data. Like, why is the effort itself the important part especially since he said earlier that the important thing is just make create happiness around you it's, it's not tied to effort or anything to that like so it's I, I found that a bit incongruous with i think right after that he says we must strive to be better even if we will never get there which yeah. i wondered if what that meant like the the effort it's not a, so much about the struggle as it is about like the journey but is that true though then? Is is that the the philosophy that I mean, I I'm pretty existentialist these days and uh have a hard time believing that anything that I do in my lifetime will actually make much of a difference to the world, but I can yeah. try to make my little corner of the world a little, mm. you know, happier and better and at least try to be, you know, obviously do all the things that I can to make the world a better place. Sure. But dear God, it's uh, daunting. I lean more towards Kate's interpretation where it was not necessarily like you just have to keep trying and deal with all the bullshit. It's more of like you're, if you're thinking about life as a, okay, I'm done. I did everything I needed to do. You're never going to be happy, right? You're never going to get that end state of complete 100% contentment for your entire life. And it's okay to have ups and downs and realize that that is life. Uh, that is the life that, that Data is trying to show to Lol is that you're going to have setbacks. You're going to have times when you don't feel as right. But the important, important thing is to keep striving and to not, not you know, veer into, um, you know, more, more negative emotions. I find it's best just to nap all, most of the day. Is that... We don't see enough napping in Star Trek. Yeah, he did not honest. teach her to nap properly. 
Taught her how to sit in a chair. To turn her off. Oh, he did turn her off. You know what? He did turn her off. He gave her a power nap. I bet she woke up really refreshed and ready to go. And then school just punched her in the gut. So Admiral Asshole arrives and uh, he is... Off the bat, just not that cool. It's almost like somebody in power who has the ability to uh, say whether or not someone has autonomy over themselves has already formed their opinion before they've even started the argument. That's so strange. Something that would never happen now where someone would just pre-make up their mind about shit. Over tea, they're just being like, oh, this person, this could be irrevocably changed. Oh, I do think that's unsatisfactory. The scene starts with Picard being quite, you know, amicable and try to figure stuff out. Then they're standing very close to each other as they're having that very intense conversation over tea again. Uh, so it goes yeah. south immediately. I think Admiral Haftel just can't get the image of Picard's nipple out of his mind. <laughs> he had to have seen it. Why is he even calling in the middle of the night? He knows Picard is sleeping. He's a, he's a complete asshole. Hope I haven't disturbed you. Like He knows he's sleeping. Power move. It is a power move. <laughs> That's when they go to, where is Lol now? We got to go uh, uh, talk to her. Um, and they go to 10 Ford and she's serving as a cocktail waitress. <laughs> he's profession shame. Right. Yes. That's right. In a utopia. It's not even real alcohol. It's synthahol. Who gives a crap? But this is where you really learn that because of the way he talks about that, when he when he shames the, the job, that he is thinking of her as a resource and a a possession and a tool to be used, not as an individual. And all I know is that you have to be an asshole if Guinan comes up and is being charming as fuck and trying to talk to you and you're still an asshole. Like, fuck you. There's little to redeem about you, good sir. And by good sir, I mean good day, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I know know Jimmy will agree that it's not really uncommon to have people come up there and tell you you're wasting your life when you're in a service job you went to school right i'm like yeah what (laughs) it's the thing that happens consistently when you're working in restaurants or anything like that it's really fascinating uh, but you're right. You can't do it to someone who's like Guinan. Like, I mean, I mean, it's Guinan. She can't disarm you. Well, not only do we like her as fans, but in Picard's uh, his captain's logs, there has to have been mention of this being that has gone against Q and Q is back down. So there's got to be some <laughs> kind of reputation or understanding in the upper echelon that on our flagship even the bartender is kind of a badass. Like, that's how that's how the Enterprise rolls. Like the bartender will fuck you up. But I can also see their relationship being such that Picard would not mention that he didn't do it. Yeah, so nobody knows. I think his disrespect is just throughout, and and this is this yeah. is the moment where they could have gone writing wise, like the child services. Like we need to, you know, we need to to step in here because you know a three week old in a bar. Like that's the that's the implied <laughs> argument here, right? This is why I want to read the book about Admiral Asshole so much because they cast him as such an asshole, <laughs> and the book is apparently about what an asshole he is. <laughs> Very excited to read it. <laughs> we got lots of reading on the syllabus for this. Yeah, really pulled it off. He's yeah. not even an actor. He's just <laughs> yeah, it could be. He ad libbed all of these lines. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about it until you just said that, Eric. I wonder if the exact same lines as written verbatim could be performed in a way that wasn't as harsh, that 
could have shown a little yeah. more. Look, I don't want to destroy your family, but there's a bigger a bigger picture here. Well, but even the the line about how many functions she could do in a second, you could be like, you're having, you know, you could be reasonable with that. She can do seventeen hundred functions in a second. And you have her serving this, like you're a dick and profession shaming, but you're not the same kind of dick. And it's a reasonable reaction for yeah. someone at war to want the people who are wanting to be part of Starfleet, perhaps, mm -hmm. if that's where she's going to go, to use their skills in a way that best benefits the society. Let's get to this interview, because yeah. this interview is bullshit. Uh, it is not an interview at all. There's no actual attempt by Haftel to get to know Law or understand what's happening. It starts off with him already pitching, we're going to take you away. And I will posit, or I will put forth, he kills her in this interview. This yeah. is the oh, moment yeah. where she starts to malfunction because of the just hate that's seeping out of him here. No, agreed. Absolutely. And again, as with the, the earlier scene with Picard and Data, her just flawless logic of like, fine, I agree. I sh I, there are better places for me to learn. So let me learn everything there is to know here and then I'll move on. And when she beats him with her, his own arguments, he just continues because he has an agenda. It's fucking terrible. He absolutely kills her. The bit here where Picard is still trying to like play both sides is hard to watch because I'm like, man, you're really trying to just kiss up to this admiral in this point right here. I also think that the, the and I, I agree with you guys, I hadn't thought of it in these terms that this is the moment she, you know, has the fatal systems error. I think it's really interesting to contrast that with the obvious one from the original series where, you know, I can't do the, you know, the, the, the logic error android that eventually blew up because they were trying to have it do two functions that opposite each other at the same time but this one again it's about the illogic of of bad emotions the logic of hate mm. you know that's that's what these androids can't figure out mm -hmm. it's a super interesting evolution of that sci-fi trope even the 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 idea of a person of authority hinting at the fact that we might be taking you away from your parents because they are not adequate. That is just as traumatic it can be. The idea that, that, that the state can do anything, Admiral's doing what he was cautioning that Data could do in this interview. Her reaction to that is very, uh, that's, a, that's a panic attack. That's an anxiety attack. Yes. Like I've had those. Like, and when she hits herself and says, I feel, that's oh. the like, it, I mean, like, that is visceral. Uh, if you've ever experienced high anxiety or, uh, or high panic, uh, like, I had trouble watching that scene for a hot second because it was mm. a little too, too real. Uh, yeah. And I remember that scene as a child, too, and being like, I feel sometimes, right? Because like, when you're <laughs> little, you, like, have lots of big emotions, <laughs> And you don't know how to deal with them yet. And there was just something so raw about that reaction, her running into to Deanna and just, I feel, I f is just what makes this episode so powerful to me. I, I so agree. And I don't, I think both uh, Hallie yeah. Todd should have a ton of credit and Jonathan Frakes yeah. being a first time mm -hmm. director. Uh, I don't know how that came about, the mimicry, in, but it's it's it just exactly conveys that. 
especially when you're young, you have all those emotions. You don't know what they are. You don't know what they're called, what they mean, what they're going to lead to, but they're there and they're taking over. And she just completely encompasses that. We go back to the uh, the observation lounge. This is where Haftel is telling Data, you know, screw you. I'm taking your kid away. And Picard makes his stand here. Uh, we, we've alluded to it a couple of times, but this is just a heroic moment. And the best part I love about it is Patrick Stewart's smile when he's telling off the Admiral, being like, you know, Admiral, yeah, there are times where you have to say fuck you. And I'm saying fuck you to you and Starfleet. This, you're not doing this while I'm the yeah. captain. No, it's, it's beautiful because Data actually gets up twice. He's an officer. He's going to take the order. He's going to give away his cat and belay that order. There are times, sir, when men of good conscience cannot blindly follow orders. You acknowledge their sentience, but you ignore their personal liberties and freedom. Yeah. So good. Wow. That's heavy. It's so, so good. And and he and perfect. the delivery is perfect because he just smiles. I called that the fuck around and find out speech because he's yes. already been like, I am going to Starfleet. I love that his reaction is, I am Starfleet, yeah, which to me is just classic, right? Yeah. <laughs> just an asshole line. Anytime Picard gets to stick it to the man, <laughs> I'm a happy camper. When they made him righteous in this series... He really is righteous. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's delightful. The audience is totally on his side at this point, too, and almost cheering when he does this. It is mm-hmm. It is nice. It is the arc. Because this is the moment, calling back to earlier, where he says child, and then he says it again. At Data, he looks at Data and says, yes, this is your child. He like almost nods, yeah. uh, acknowledging yeah. his uh, dismissal of that earlier in the episode to being like, no, this there is no other definition here. You know, and I'm not going to stand while uh, the state takes away someone's child on my ship. I love it. Picard has always been this ultimate embodiment of the ideals of, of Star Trek and, and, and Starfleet in many ways, in, in ways that nobody else can live up to. And I think it's this scene in particular that shows, like really cements Picard's status as that. He did mm-hmm. it in measure of a man, but he really goes to bat his his characters integrity he puts everything on the line he doesn't care it's about the principle he's going to do whatever it takes and of course it never comes to that but he did it and like at this point like picard's the man right forever I, th- I think it was really important that he took the stand and as you're saying it doesn't necessarily actually matter because uh Haftel's already killed her uh so we go <laughs> to uh the scene in the lab Everyone is there. Haftel, Picard, and Data discuss what's happening more. And then Law kind of wakes up and is is like, what, what's, what's going on? And I actually love that they say that we have to try to fix. This is where the techno babble comes in. We got to fix these things. And then Haftel says, can I assist? And it reminds me of that old doctor trope. You need someone to assist you and as you're as you're trying to save this life. And it has that hospital moment, right, where Jordy, Troy, and Wesley are there outside the waiting room, like, you know, having their nervousness and their emotions at play, and then Haftel coming out and having to deliver the news in a way that I, I actually really believe. I think he was actually very it wasn't just about the loss of equipment or the loss of, of an Android. He actually saw the connection between these two by the end his his performances and delivery is really good and he's quite emotional and i almost almost forgave him and then he says the words it just wasn't meant to be (laughs) are you fucking kidding me you fucking killed her it wasn't meant to be because you were such an asshole come on for the most part that is performance is really good it was ridiculously sophomoric that he puts up his hands and looks at it when he recalls how fast data's hands were working 
This is uh, elementary, and Riker should have cut that out completely. <laughs> he was never redeemable to me. He's like, because you learned too late that you were an asshole doesn't make you redeemable. You're still an asshole. So what that you feel bad? That's the least you could do. Uh, he His actions certainly did cause Lol to go into what happened to her. What happened to her was going to happen no matter what. Mm. Having that emotion, feeling emotions causing a breakdown at some point was going to happen and it was going to happen very soon. Like within a few weeks, something would have happened that would have made those emotions go crazy and her brain wasn't ready for it. It wasn't built in a way that could sustain it. So it was inevitable. He doesn't get a pass because he's the one who made it happen uh, because kindness could have at least gotten around that. But she never should have had them anyways because there's no reason to want humanity. Like to striving for something, there's nothing about us that's so great that anything that isn't like us should strive to be us. So the fact that it destroyed her makes sense to me because it was it should have never been inside of what she was, which was better than us anyways. It's an interesting point. I, I will disagree that I think it was inevitable because if you think about the age thing here, right? Like she, the whole point was that there, she, she's getting more data put onto her heuristic learning systems, right? And like, and then eventually she's like, okay, we're done. So she was, it was supposed to model maturity, right? And so I think what this episode could mean is that she received that trauma from Admiral Haftel before she was equipped emotionally to to deal with it. Trauma happening when you're 12 is very different from trauma happening when you're 32, for example. Jimmy, would you would you say that you wish that Haftel had a little more comeuppance there at the end? Oh, not even a little. Like maybe his bars <laughs> taken away or something. Like yeah. you destroyed a precious. We sent you here to bring it back. You destroyed it. You're done. <laughs> you're yeah, out. done of the federation yeah it's hard to imagine a worse performance review after this mission <laughs> right <laughs> someone's above him yeah the, the best most emotional gut punch is data and lol alone in the lab this is just heartbreaking this is where i break down crying uh watching this episode for the last you know uh two days her i mean yeah. her his i wish i could feel it with you i love you father i wish i could feel it with you i will feel it for both of us Thank you for my life. Come on. Like I'm getting teary eyed just thinking of it's such a gorgeous, yeah. tiny, mm -hmm. small scene. And kudos to Frakes because that could have been overblown and cheesy or or like, but I just think they struck the right chord on that where it mm -hmm. really it still affects me. I love you, father. Yeah. Oh. And they did go overblown on the camera work and and it worked because of the ability of these actors yeah. and, and the script and the music. It all supports it. But like that that shot where they're both in close up, but they're apart from each other and looking at separate directions like that is it's right out of the fucking European new wave in the 60s. And it so completely works. And then I love that robotic kind of death scene of repeating words it's like touchstones of all of the scenes that we have seen over the last 45 minutes human to have that death it's it was it was really well done and everybody's super sad on the bridge for data and he says well i just took her memories and put them inside my brain so it's all good yo <laughs> right no it's no like you, you you're giving a short thrift her presence so enriched my life i could not allow her to pass into oblivion Thank yes. you, Shams. Wow. Thank you. It is it beautiful. Is beautiful. And, and it doesn't that capture 
like how we should be taking care of each other. Like we all live on in memory, even if we can't stay on the in the planet. Like what we do in life echoes in eternity. It's huge. Right? Are you not and entertained? So <laughs> <laughs> and so one more time, really impress upon everybody how good Brent Spiner is in this. When he walks onto that bridge, he does not do anything out of character with his data. It's a complete lack of emotion. He he uses rhythms and he uses various blank stares and abilities to to have us feel what data should feel and it's it's truly just magnificent that he has a director a composer a camera group everybody that can help him do nothing in the way that he knows he has to do nothing and be confident that the camera will still catch it. It's really good. And what you're talking about, Eric, is is so evident in that last shot with the camera just on him and it's just data. And it just drives home the tragedy of this on several levels because we are then feeling for him what he can't feel himself. And it's just, oh, I'm tearing up just to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. like law, we, we are imposing our emotions onto it. And it is beautiful because yeah. you could say he's doing something differently when he's sitting there. But like, I don't think he is. I think he is still just being this blank slate that we can impress our own emotional storytelling on. But it's the way he's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's always present even when data has to be blank. Yeah. You know, just it's, it's a masterclass in, in subtle physical acting. It's just brilliant. It's powerful. Well, that's the episode. Let's go around the horn on final thoughts. Jimmy, I will throw it to you first. What do you think of The Offspring? I will give it nine daddy babies. <laughs> it's a brilliant episode. Uh, it's a uh, milestone in TNG. The, the series is shaped, and this is one of them, where the storytelling uh, really goes off in a elevated direction. It's so sci-fi with bringing in sentient non-human life form and it makes you angry by the way that life form is taught and then feel good about the way that life form is defended and then sad when the life form is taken away. Uh, so it hits all the aspects that make sci-fi my favorite genre. Uh, to watch. Um, it's nearly flawless and the parts of it that are flawed are so nitpicky it's uh, not even worth talking about them. So it's just a fantastic, fantastic episode. Kate, what about you? Uh, I'm going to give this episode nine naked nipples. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's everything that Jimmy just said. Uh, we, we've talked as a collective how much we enjoy when Star Trek does what it does best, which is be truly good to its sci-fi roots and also true to its sort of idea of can we be better than ourselves? And this has a, a little bit uh, or a lot of both of those. Also for it to be that directorial debut of Frakes is just makes it monumental because we know where that's going to go in the future. And not to mention that this episode was so important and seminal that it begat its own sort of uh, offspring with Picard, right? The whole first season is based on this episode. It's just beautifully done. It's shot well. It's acted incredibly well. And uh, and for a spec script, come on. Just right. everything about this is is firing on all cylinders for me. Eric? I am conflicted about this one. I, I love the performances. 10 out of 10, the direction, 10 out of 10, the writing style, 10 out of 10, the vision, uh, the visuals and the music. But 
the stuff in the first 20 minutes that is so tone deaf even for the time on gender knocks it down to about a seven and a half for me. So I'm going to give it seven and a half uh, Riker um, trip takes. <laughs> uh, I, I think there are moments in this that are among the best moments in, in Star Trek history of five or six season, uh, series that I've watched. Um, I can't imagine that they would get pushed out of that anytime soon. Um, I, you know, you know of my love for this whole cast in terms of, of the actors and the ones that were so uh, focused in this one are probably my three favorite in, in Patrick Stewart, uh, uh, Guinan and Data. Uh, and it's fantastic guest stars all the way through. So seven and a half for me, but that's just because of that first 20 minutes, which distracted me for much of the rest of it. I'll give my quick bit and then we'll end on you, Sham. For me, it's similar to you, Eric. I, I did not enjoy a lot of the tone deafness about gender early on, but it comes together. It's a bottle episode, which I didn't even think of, but it's it was mostly done so that it would be a cheap episode to create. It's all on the ship. There's minimal guest stars. It's supposed to be one of those things that just kind of helps with the production and keeps their, you know, 20 plus episode seasons moving. But it ends up being so poignant on so many levels, despite all that. And as you said, it's a jumping off point for for Renea Shaveria, for Frakes as a director, for so many things that I give it eight Guinan looks with her eyes. Shams, what do you think? What is, what's your thoughts on this episode? I really can't add. Everyone just put it so nicely. I I gave it like nine uh, nine out of ten evil Starfleet admirals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to me, this is a signature episode. Like if I if I want to recommend Star Trek to somebody, want to try out some real science fiction, this is the episode I usually end up recommending. And it's it's just like I, I love it. I love it to bits. I adore this episode. And uh, thank you so much for contributing to this discussion. You added so much insight. I really, really loved yes, yes. Uh, everything you were saying here. Uh, thank you for coming on. And definitely, you know, hopefully you can come on and spread the love for more Swedish Star Trek fans in the future. I adored coming on the show. Thank you so much, guys. I had a great time. Thank you. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you or what you're doing, what's the what's the best place to kind of send them? Twitter. Uh, Shamster Johnny on Twitter. Uh, that's where I post my shenanigans uh, and uh, the stuff I do in the games industry. That's you, where you can follow me. Sweet. Well, thanks again. It was really wonderful. And my pants are soaking wet because this is a very long episode. I've drank two of these, <laughs> which was a bad idea, but there was a lot to get into in this one. So thank you for sticking around as long as you guys did. We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at reengagetng to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 